Hi everyone, uh, my name is Rowan Kemp. If I haven't met you before, I work as a chaplain at Sydney University and it's my privilege to work alongside the Evangelical Union on campus. And we find ourselves in a very unusual situation. Um, the uni has announced, of course, that there'll be no more teaching of classes in person from Monday coming. Uh, they instructed all the clubs and societies last Friday afternoon to cease on-campus activities as of this week. So the EU very hurriedly moved everything online, all of the one-to-one meetups, all the small group Bible studies, all of the equipped training courses, all of the public meetings, everything has gone online in a flurry this week. And that's because the situation we find ourselves in is, of course, incredibly serious. There are a growing number of COVID-19 cases across Australia, as you're well aware. And we look at alarm with what's happening in some of the European countries, Italy, France, Spain, let alone what's gone on in China over the last couple of months now. I just noticed again, just the numbers going up each week, uh, that apparently Italy recorded 475 deaths yesterday from the virus. Earlier this week, when I was looking at those stats, uh, I think for Monday's public meeting, it was 368 had happened in the previous day. So the numbers of cases, the number of deaths are going up. And we heard just today that now globally, there's 210,000 confirmed cases. Um, locally, we know that libraries, gyms, pools are closing down in some council areas. There were 40 new cases. Uh, confirmed in New South Wales just yesterday. Uh, earlier this week, that it was more like 20-something a week, and today it's now 40. Uh, we've had 418 confirmed cases across Australia. That's up from 280 earlier this week. And six people have sadly passed away in Australia. So, I mean, it's an incredibly serious situation, and we're still, sadly, on the escalation side. Now, as a result, there's all sorts of changes going on, not just on campus, but across our society. And you've seen, no doubt, pictures and images, video of people panic buying in, in shops, shot, um, photos or video of you know city streets or trains fairly empty. I just wonder actually how you're feeling about all of this as you watch it all. Are you worried? Are you feeling anxious? Lots of people are fearful, are very concerned about what's going on. People are scared. Some people, and maybe a smaller number of people and a declining number of people are maybe thinking that we're overreacting, maybe going too hard. I guess no matter where you're at with this, no matter how you're feeling about what's going on, I do have, I think, some good news to share with you. And the good news I, I get to share with you is this, no matter what goes on, no matter how this plays out, Jesus has got this. Jesus has got this. Now, I don't mean, of course, that Jesus has COVID-19. He doesn't have the coronavirus. I also don't mean that he's got this situation like some sort of super virologist who's going to sort of sweep in and deliver, deliver us the vaccine and suddenly we're all rescued from this viral threat that we're facing right now. What I mean when I say Jesus has got this is that I mean no matter how this runs, no matter 
whether the curve that we're concerned about gets flatter or not, whether or not I catch it or whether or not you catch it, whether or not even the unthinkable happens and death darkens my family's doorway or yours, as it sadly already has for six Australian families. No matter what happens, Jesus still has got this. He's the one who draws near to us. He's the one who has control. He's the one who can rescue. He's the one to whom we can all turn for a certain, a sure hope in this situation. That's what I want to explore with you a little bit today by looking at a particular account recording for us in the Christian New Testament from the book of Mark. Now, it's quite strange how things have worked out under God's timing here because here we are, no one expected, obviously, this virus to have affected us all in the way that it has, but here we are in this virtual situation because of the COVID-19 virus. And yet at the same time, this week, week four of the Sydney Uni first semester, was when we were scheduled to start a new series in the EU public meetings looking at the Gospel of Mark. And so the EU had asked me at the end of last year whether I would lead us through this 13-week look at the Gospel of Mark. We're doing 13 weeks in public meetings spread across the year. And now Mark's Gospel has 16 chapters, and so I was sort of thinking, well, okay, the EU's kindly given me 13 weeks. What am I going to do with these 13 weeks? How am I going to move through the Gospel of Mark? Do you just sort of divide it up mathematically? So 16 chapters, that's a chapter and a little bit each week, or that didn't seem to make much sense, that Mark is written as an account to be read out, really to be listened to in one, in one sitting, and we're dividing it up into lots of little sections. That doesn't make sense to do it sort of just by sheer number of words. But then it also didn't make much sense to me to just start with the first couple of paragraphs, even though that's where Mark starts, partly because I think the big picture of Mark's gospel is that the first couple of chapters are really just the setting up, just the setting up of the story. And so what I thought as a way into Mark's whole account of Jesus was actually to jump into where Jesus first interacts with just some regular people, people who turn to him or people to whom he comes in their moment of need. So I was already looking at the interactions that Jesus has with some of these people in the early chapters of Mark. And the first two regular people that Jesus meets, there's one is a man who's in a Jewish synagogue and we're told that he's there with an unclean spirit. Well, that raises lots of questions. What do we mean by that, an unclean spirit? And we're going to talk about that in a little while. But then the second person he meets on the same day is a woman, a mum, as it turns out, a mum who is in bed with a fever. Now, I'll be honest, for years I've read that story and not really made that big a deal of it. I mean, he's a sick person who then Jesus makes better. I mean, that's great. But I think, like me, you're probably used to sick people, people who've got a fever anyway, people with a fever do tend to get better. I mean, we can treat it with paracetamol and reduce the symptoms and people with fevers, we're used to them getting better. I think we've forgotten that 
prior to paracetamol, prior to 20th century medicine, if you were in bed with a fever, that was a very serious situation. Certainly in the ancient world, if you were, if you had a fever and you had to take to bed, then that actually was a very dangerous situation. You were really literally under the shadow of death because as you lay there, once the fever had so affected you that you weren't able to just function normally and you're lying down in your bed, visually it poses the question really for you and for everybody else watching and who loves you that is this person going to rise again? They're lying down. Is death next? And that was a very real question if you were struck with a fever where your body just unchecked temperature rises. So suddenly in the light of the increased mortality rate that we're seeing with the COVID-19 virus, suddenly this little account here in Mark chapter 1 about Jesus going to this mum who has a fever and is in bed, suddenly this story takes on a whole sort of new level of resonance, I think, with our current situation. So I thought this seemed like a good way, a good way to start our series looking at Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. So I'm just going to read out this account to you and it's going to pop up on the screen now. Let me read it to you. And they went into Capernaum, Mark records. Now they, there is Jesus and some of his closest disciples, his, his new followers. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We'll read on. And immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And Jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for Jesus. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. 
And Jesus said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came forth. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Such an interesting story. It really describes a crazy weekend in Capernaum because you'll notice there a lot of the events happen in a very short space of time. If you've got a Bible or you can call it up on your screen and have a look at it, I'm in Mark chapter 1. I'll just point out a few verses to you. Verse 21, we're told they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, so the Jewish special Jewish religious day that we know as a Saturday, when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Then we read at the end of that incident with the man with the, there with the unclean spirit, we're told, verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went to Simon's house. So that's the same day. And then verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Same day. It's a crazy, crazy Saturday happening in Capernaum. And then verse 35, very early the next morning. So Sunday morning, Jesus gets up, goes away and prays, and then they have a conversation with the disciples and they move on to the next towns. So it all happens in a very packed weekend, a crazy Saturday, one weekend there in Capernaum. Now, you might think, having just read out the bit that we read, the bit that maybe we're drawn to are these miraculous healings, the guy with the unclean spirit who's delivered from that oppression, and then Simon's mother-in-law who's in bed with this fever under the shadow of death. That's what we suddenly go, well, that's clearly the focus. But, but actually we've got to pay more careful attention to what Mark's told us because the way Mark has re relayed what happened here to us, his account focuses actually instead on Jesus' teaching. That's the main game. You'll notice there at the beginning, verse 21, they went to Capernaum when the Sabbath came. Jesus went into the synagogue, began to teach, and the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the Lord, not as the scribes. So it starts out by focusing on Jesus' teaching and the authority that he had. And if you jump to the very end of what we read, you'll notice that Mark returns to Jesus' teaching. Jesus says at the end, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can teach and preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues. The emphasis is actually on Jesus' message. These miracles that he does, these miraculous healings that Jesus does, are illustrations that go with his message, his preaching. So we need to focus in, first of all, then on Jesus' teaching. What does it mean when the crowds are amazed because he teaches with authority? What's all that about? Well, you'll notice uh, if you read on in the rest of Mark's gospel, this is a recurring theme. Later on in Mark's account of Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection, when he gets to Mark chapter 7, there's an extended interaction between Jesus and these teachers of the law, these scribes. And what chapter 7 of Mark's gospel reveals is the way that the teachers of the law would teach was that they would focus on what was called the traditions of the elders. 
That is, they tended to focus on all the different traditions that had been built up over time around the Old Testament Jewish law. They were focused on what this elder had said about the law, what this elder had said about it. They were focusing on the traditions of the elders, or as it's called in Mark chapter 7, sometimes human traditions or your own traditions. Jesus' teaching wasn't like that. Jesus didn't teach by focusing on the traditions of the elders. Now, Jesus taught with authority. That is, he, he taught with his own authority or really with a divine authority from God, his heavenly father. And that really stood out to those who heard Jesus. His teaching was different. It had this authority to it. And that authority was illustrated in these particular healings that went on as Jesus was teaching. The man with the unclean spirit, who Jesus commands the spirit and the spirit leaves, and Simon's mother-in-law, who Jesus is able to heal and demonstrate his power even over the shadow of death. Those are illustrations that show the sort of authority that Jesus had as he taught. Now, as you think about that man who is there in the synagogue, the man with the unclean spirit, and Jesus commanding the spirit and leaving the man, you may be a bit sceptical. I understand that. Our Western Enlightenment worldview tends to reject the non-physical. It tends to dismiss these sort of experiences out of hand. We, we might end up saying something like, oh, these unclean spirits or the demonic, maybe they're just some manifestation of a, a sad mental health issue. Maybe Jesus' exorcisms or authority over the spiritual realm, maybe, maybe those are actually just some sort of physical healing or maybe just a, a temporary physical respite from some mental health illness. If, you, if that's your sort of view, if you sort of share that sort of sceptical view on it, I, I've just got a few observations really, two, to share. The first one is that's not certainly not the worldview of the Bible, of the Christian Bible. The Christian Bible is very clear that the spiritual realm is real, that God is real. There is only one true living God according to the Christian Bible. And if you're just dismissing that out of hand, if you say, well, that's just not possible, just, there is no spiritual realm, I just gently, humbly sort of suggest that maybe you're actually closing yourself off in your worldview. Do you actually have good evidence to prove, to demonstrate that there is no spiritual realm? Because the perspective of the Christian Bible is that there is a spiritual realm, there are indeed spiritual forces of evil, there is more to life than you can just taste or see or touch or even test. There's a spiritual realm. God is real. Jesus is alive. A new spiritual birth is actually a real possibility for you now. And the message from this particular passage in Mark's account is that Jesus has real spiritual authority over the spiritual realm. So that's the first observation I'd make, that the Bible's not sceptical about these things. The second observation I'd make is that I would suggest today that 
that scepticism is not really shared by millions, maybe even billions of people around the globe today, including, I imagine, many who are watching this. There are those watching this today who've seen aspects of tribal or traditional religion up close and know that the spiritual realm is real. There are those watching today who maybe have been caught up in some scary religious experience. Maybe there's those who dabbled in the occult and you've actually seen the spiritual darkness, we might call it, up close. And it might be worth pondering, why is it that those who set out to debunk all spiritual experiences as faith, why is it those who set out to prove that and try to provide natural or rationalizations for those experiences, why is it that there's, they always end up coming a little bit short? You might say, well, it's just they haven't tried hard enough. They just haven't tried hard enough. If we just keep trying, then we'll be able to explain it all the way. But if you just think about that statement, that statement itself, if we just try hard enough, we certainly will be able to explain it all. That itself is actually a statement of faith. That's not a scientific statement. That's not sustainable scientifically. I would suggest that maybe you've actually closed yourself off to the possibility that the spiritual realm is indeed real. Because there is an alternative explanation, a simpler explanation, and that is that, that there is a spiritual realm, including spiritual dark powers. And part of Mark's record of Jesus' ministry was that Jesus exercised power over those dark spiritual forces. So the good news of Jesus is that there is one who has power, who has authority, and those who come to him have nothing more to fear. So the spiritual realm is not in any way a scary place for Christians because we know that Jesus is Lord. He's the one in control. And as we see in this very incident, the unclean spirits have no choice but to obey him. So there's no more fear of the spiritual realm for those who've come to Jesus. And then after Jesus rescues this man who's been oppressed by this unclean spirit, immediately we're told by Mark, verse 29, immediately as they leave the synagogue, they go to Simon's house where his mother-in-law is ill with this fever, taken to bed under the very shadow of death. Why did they take Jesus there? We're not told. Did Simon have a sense that maybe Jesus, who just delivered this man who had an unclean spirit, might be able to do something for his mother-in-law? We're not told that, interestingly. At this point, it seems that it's much more innocent. They don't really have a good idea at all of the power, the authority that Jesus has, even of who he really is. Nevertheless, they've decided to follow him. Simon lives there in Capernaum. They take him back to his place. And then you read there in verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. And then Jesus takes the initiative. Verse 31, so Jesus went to her. Literally, he drew near, took her by the hand, touched her hand, and raised her up. 
is the word that Mark uses to describe what Jesus does. He lifts her, helps her up out of bed. And then we're told the fever left her and she began to serve them. That is what Mark's trying to communicate to us there is this wasn't a slow, steady recovery. It wasn't like, okay, because of Jesus' help, she turned the corner, had to convalesce for a couple of days, and then she was right as right. No, no. This was instantaneous. The fever left her. She suddenly felt good. And so she did what she would normally be doing, that is showing hospitality to her guests. It was a full and complete recovery, instantaneous. Such was Jesus' power. Such was Jesus' ability to rescue this person who was in the very shadow of death. Now, I don't know if it struck you, but as you read the account or as you heard it, the intimate details that Mark records, when they told Jesus about her, Jesus drew near to her. He touched her hand, which, you know, these days as we think about coronavirus, we think about social distancing, we think about how we know fevers and these sort of viruses are passed on person to person. We're going, he touched her hand. (laughs) He touched her hand and he helped her up. How come Mark has such intimate knowledge of this? Well, those who were much closer to the writing of Mark's gospel, which happened probably just a a handful of decades, we estimate, after Jesus did this, probably happened within 30 years. It was actually written down. But we think that the way that Mark got his information was because Mark got it from Simon. That's the tradition that sort of came to us by those who are much closer to events. They said that Mark got his information from Simon, who was also called Peter. And that sort of makes sense. It makes sense at this moment where you've got this detailed recollection Simon saying, I I brought Jesus to my house. We told him my mother-in-law was ill in bed and then we watched as Jesus went to her and he reached out and touched her hand and lifted her up and suddenly she was well. This is the intimate description of an eyewitness account that Mark has then recorded for us. And it's interesting that the word Mark uses that Jesus raised her up The word raised there can just mean, you know, lifted up, helped up. But it's the same word that Mark will use later in this account to describe Jesus' own resurrection from the grave, not just under the shadow of death, lying ill on a a bed. No, no. When Jesus is crucified and placed in a tomb, he is Raised, it's that same word by his heavenly father back to new eternal life again. So there's a little a little hint here, even though we've only got into the first chapter, we've not very far into Mark's account about Jesus, but a little hint that actually Jesus really does have power and authority over those who are in the shadow of death. It'll be seen ultimately in his own escape from the grave, his own resurrection. That's where this story is going. Well, what do we do with this? What do we do with this particular account? Well, notice what happens next. Jesus' fame spreads like wildfire. Is it any surprise, really, given what he's just done? You can see there in verse 28, 
news about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee after he delivered this man in the synagogue. And then again, after he heals Simon's mother-in-law, verse 32, that evening after sunset, that is after the day's work is done and people return to their homes and they hear what's going on at Simon's house after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed, the whole town gathered at the door. They rush to Jesus. They want more of this. They want what Jesus offers. And what was Jesus' response? Well, Jesus has three responses here, really, in this little passage you'll notice. First of all is Jesus' compassion with the crowds, the compassion, his compassion with the crowds. Verse 34, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. We'll return to that in future weeks. So you notice here first Jesus' compassion. It's not just Simon's mother-in-law who benefits, not just the man in the synagogue. He heals many, those who need him. He's here to help those who are in need. He has compassion. It's a good thing to remember, isn't it, this time? Jesus is the one who draws near in compassion to us. What's the second thing we notice? The next morning, verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What do you see here? We see Jesus' dependence, Jesus' dependence on his heavenly father. Yes, Jesus teaches here and he does these miracles with authority, but that authority comes from his heavenly father. He is dependent on his heavenly father. We're going to explore next week as we go back to the beginning of Mark's account in Mark chapter 1. We're going to explore a little bit of the relationship Jesus has with his heavenly father, which gives us a clue about who this guy Jesus really is in our midst. So we see Jesus' dependence on his father. And then we see a third response of Jesus. When Simon, in verse 36, and his friends come and look for Jesus and say, look, everyone is back looking for you. They've all come back. It's Sunday morning now. They've all rushed back to the house. They all want you. But then Jesus reply, verse 38, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also, for that is why I have come. Jesus' focus is on his message. It's the message of Jesus that is key to him. The miracles that he's doing, these healings, which he's happy to do with people, they are secondary illustrative of the message he has to proclaim and what's that message well we haven't been told actually in the bit i read out today we're just told he was there teaching in the synagogue they were amazed at his teaching it was teaching with as one with authority and not like the scribes and here jesus says and this is my job i'm here for this message to proclaim the message what's the message well earlier in the chapter before we dig in jesus says as sort of a one-line summary Chapter 1, verse 15, here's a summary of Jesus' message. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. 
repent and believe the good news. The time has come, something significant about the arrival of Jesus, something in the purposes of God that is now right. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. That is something about the one true living God and when he is king and what that means for people who are oppressed, who, who need help. The kingdom of God is near. And then a call. Repent, turn around and believe the good news. Believe his message that he's preaching. It's all a little bit enigmatic at this point in Mark's gospel. It hasn't all been explained and it'll only become clearer as we go on and listen to the rest of what Mark has to report about the things Jesus said and did. But we have here the beginning of Jesus' message. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. So repent and believe the good news that Jesus is bringing. What does that look like? What does it look like to embrace those things? Well, part of what we see from the passages, the stories, the account that we saw today, part of what it means is deliverance, rescue. Jesus is the one who draws near to us in our time of need. Jesus is the one who takes us by the hand. Jesus is the one who lifts us up. Jesus is the one who has control. That's part of what we take away today. What does that look like then, practically, at a practical level, as you and I face the uncertainties of this coronavirus, even as we acknowledge that maybe we need Jesus to draw near to us because he's the one who has control? How do then, if you do draw near to Jesus, how do you live out that life of faith, of trust in him in the face of COVID-19? Well, I came across on Facebook, and you might have seen it too, uh, sort of a quote that was doing the rounds. It's from a guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Christian church reformer back in the 15th and 16th century, facing at the time the Black Death, the plague. And this is what he wrote, and I think it captures helpfully what it looks like to be someone who trusts in the one true living God, who trusts in Jesus as King, as Lord. This is what Martin Luther wrote. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Right? That reflects, doesn't it, that Jesus is the one who's in control. We ask for God's protection. And then he says, I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. That is, he's saying, I'm going to be practical. I'm going to follow the medical advice of his day. I'm not going to not take medicine. I'm going to administer and take it as I need it. I'm going to observe social distancing effectively is what he's saying. He's going to follow the wise advice of his day. And then he says, if God should wish to take me, He will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. He just acknowledges that, yes, if the unthinkable happens and death comes to my door, well, God will have me, 
and I will have done what I needed to do. I won't be responsible for other people's death or my own. But then he says, if my neighbour needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. He's determined to love neighbour, love his neighbour as himself, which is what Jesus told us to do. We're not going to not show love out of fear. I think that's a really helpful just summary of what it means to move forward as a person with real faith in Jesus at a time of this coronavirus, this uncertainty and crisis. It's interesting that in this story, as I come to an end, interesting as we read this account of what happened, the people were amazed by this man, Jesus. They were amazed at what he did, but they were also just amazed at the message that he had to share, the authority with which he delivered both that message and these healings. And word about him just spread like wildfire. Well, I guess we should be amazed too, shouldn't we? That's why Mark's recorded it for us, so we can meet this same Jesus, Jesus who is alive today, resurrected at his Father's side, the one who can draw near to us today, that we might be amazed by him. This is who he is. This is what he offers us, to draw near, to take us by the hand, to raise us up, even if death itself takes us. As we trust in him, as we believe his message, he promises to rescue us from the very grave. Such is his authority and power. That's really good news. That's incredibly comforting news in a time of uncertainty. That's good news from God. That's good news that it might be good to share with others. Is there someone else in your life who this week might be encouraged by this good news of the Jesus who is alive, who draws near, who takes us by the hand and raises us up out of the very shadow of death? Is that good news someone else could do to hear? Why don't you tell them that story? Why don't you open up Mark chapter 1 and read it with them? Why don't you... You can share this link on Facebook. I actually just think this is such comforting news that we have to share. I hope next week you might be able to come back as we take a backward step back into the beginning of Mark chapter 1 and look at the context in which Jesus started this ministry of proclaiming his message and doing these healings. We're going to try to fill out this picture of who was Jesus, what, what was he doing as we go back to the beginning of Mark's account in Mark chapter 1. I hope you can join us for that, and um, I look forward to sharing with you then. Take care. God bless.